You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Oh, Jeff, uh, we got a uh, correction sent in to us the other day. Did we? What, what, what did I get wrong? Yeah, uh, I messed oh, up. Oh, it wasn't me? No, I messed oh, up. Okay. Me. Oh, okay. No, this time it was me. All right, so uh, a listener named John from Los Angeles, California, let us know that Brian Eno, in fact, the keyboard player for Roxy Music, and the person that my friend was screaming at was the singer of Roxy Music, and his name is Brian Ferry. So Brian Eno, keyboard player, Brian Ferry. There's too many Brians in that band. There should be a law that just says you can have one. And then after that, you have to find someone else. It's worse than Duran Duran with all their tailors. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off. Jeff McLarge. Jeff? Oh, hold on. Oh, hey. Thank heavens you clapped on. (laughs) Hey there, Bill. How you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for asking. Good to be, good to be here. Good to be recording with you how are you doing i am tired i've had a a, oh. a long run of like heavy duty work at work this has been your uh standard for the past couple of weeks here yes but there's been there's been a gauntlet this uh-huh. last like couple months or so was that but, gonna be winding down or is this gonna uh, be your normal i think i'm more gonna be adapting to the pace more than the pace adapting uh-huh. to me although admittedly we're coming out of the busiest period of the year at the place that i work so it should lighten up a little bit, but it's going to take another month or two before it really does. Speaking of lighting up, I watched a movie that the entire planet has seen, except for me, and now I'm on board with the rest of the planet. Up until like two weeks ago, I had never seen Tron. Original Tron? Never seen it. It's underwhelming, Bill. It is. In, in 2023, that movie is drastically underwhelming. Well, let me let me tell you something amazing about 1983 or 84 when it came out. It was underwhelming then. And huh. I, saw, I saw it in the cinema and was like, um, so it's like Pong the motion picture. <laughs> and so, it's not that good. The video game, the stand-up arcade game gave you the gist of the story better than the movie did and was way more fun. Oh, yeah. I like the arcade game. I used to play the arcade game all the time. The movie, like I said, I found it a little underwhelming. Living through the entirety of the computer revolution from Mm -hmm. this is going to end up in your home and you're going to do everything on it to it's now in my home and I do everything on it. Right. Watching how science fiction writers predicted what the future was going to be like is hilarious. 
Also, every operating system in every movie I've ever watched is way better than any operating system I've ever seen in real life. <laughs> One of the things that I that I like about Tron, and and again, this isn't faint praise. I like things that are original, aren't tied to some other piece of media or whatever, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Is Disney trying so hard to get into the science fiction space with something that would stick? They tried the black right, hole. Right, because black hole wasn't all that like before that, I think Black Hole was like 80, 1980, I think. I think it was 1980, and it was a huge bomb. It was the most expensive live-action movie they'd ever made, and it made it didn't make its money back. It was like $29 million. They just threw it away. And huh. Tron also did not make its money back. No? I thought that was a big uh, hit in the cinema. It was cause... not a big hit in the cinema. It was much bigger on television. Much bigger oh. hit when it was on cable TV. I, like I said, I had never seen it up until two weeks ago, and I kind of had it in my head that it didn't really make the cable television cycle the same way like E.T. never really did. I mean, E.T. ran for a year. It, Dartmouth, Dartmouth Mass at General Cinema Theaters, it ran for a whole year. Yeah. Tron ran for a whole month, almost. Yeah. <laughs> it did not stay in the cinemas for a long time. It didn't, I don't know that it made its, it may have made its budget back, but it didn't make money for Disney. The other thing that I learned from watching Tron was I'm not entirely confident in being able to tell the difference between Jeff Bridges and Kurt Russell. They are almost <laughs> essentially the same person. At that time in their careers, yeah, they may as well be the same person. And and Bruce Boxleitner looks like the two of those guys smushed together in like some yep. weird machine to make a, a single person. And he's the yeah. other star of, uh, of Tron. Because I'm watching it and I was like, this came out in 83. He looks so different than he did in The Thing, which was the same movie. And that's not even the same actor. Damn it. (laughs) Nope. A different guy. The one thing I did really like in Tron was David Warner's desk with the computer built into it. At the time, I thought that was the neatest thing. I'm watching that and all I could think of is that my fingertips would be hating my guts after just one day. Oh, yeah. Typing onto just glass? No, I'd kill myself. Ow! (laughs) (laughs) Why did I do this? This is a terrible idea. All right, so before we go on to the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh Uh-oh. Yep, speaking of technologies, a technology that we have had in our life for the past 25 years, or almost 25 years, has uh, announced that it's coming to a close. Netflix announced that their mail service, their mail DVD service, is going to be wrapping up. And I think September of this year is when they're going to finally stop doing that. Uh-huh. That being said, the Netflix DVD mail subscription service, which ultimately put the end to Blockbuster, mm-hmm. what was the first movie that got rented and sent out in the mail by Netflix? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> there's there's uh, uh, only uh, a million movies to choose I, from. I look here. forward to getting this wrong at good. the end of the show. It was probably Tron, and they were underwhelmed when they watched it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you it at the end Tron, of the show. And that's why Netflix survived as a business for so long. <laughs> Yeah, that's what's probably it. But this is going to be the week beginning, May the 22nd, and it is your turn to start. May 22nd, 1931. Florida, the greatest state in the Union for the weirdness that is the United States of America, begins to sell canned rattlesnake meat, Bill. See, I'm sorry, my, <laughs> my microphone kind of like kind of shut off for a second there because it sounded like, right? It sounded like you said canned rattlesnake meat. I did indeed say canned rattlesnake meat. And as I understand what? it, Bill, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> so if you're looking for something that tastes like chicken, costs way more, has the ick factor of times a million than 
1931's Florida has the product for you. Can rattlesnake meat, Bill. And I bet like the real like hardcore people like, ah, no, no, no. Fresh snake meat is way better. <laughs> Canon takes all the flavor away. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the sort of flex you want to have. Well, I only eat water moccasin. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Florida is a strange place, man. I know you've been there a bunch of times. I've been there a couple of times. And yeah. I, I like Florida as a place that I don't live in, but I can go visit where I can go see things like cans of rattlesnake meat or 15 foot long alligators just sort of strolling down the road uh snatching people's pets as they walk by a pond but it's an unusual part of the country yeah speaking of unusual what is the most bizarre i know you've been vegetarian for you know five years now or something like that pretty much okay so three years so prior to that though do you ever partake in any like exotic meats you know, outside of chicken, turkey, beef, and pork. Yeah, I've, I've eaten some unusual stuff. You know, my general modus operandi is that if it has legs and it's not a chair, I'll eat it, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part. But fortunately, snakes have no legs, so I don't ever have to worry about eating those. Mm-hmm. So point for me. But I've had yep. a bear. I've had moose. I've had deer, rabbit, possum. So I've had my share of a, a slightly unusual stuff. When I was in England... You never knew. It was usually parts of the anim- regular animals that normally people eat, but it was just parts that people normally don't eat. Like, oh, beef snout. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> horse anus? Well, whatever. Sure. You know, for the most part, you know, most of it's normal for me, regular food. The only two, we'll say, odd things that I've had, and they were both in the form of beef jerky. Uh, so I've had alligator and I've had ostrich. Oh. They're jerky, so there's not really a lot of flavor to them, you know, except for whatever they soak them in. It was more like a novelty thing. I ate an alligator. I would. I'd eat alligator meat. I. I'd, I'd try that. I try iguana too. I know there's a market now for invasive species that inevitably, when they take foothold in a place, people try to make them palatable so that there'll be a reason to farm them and take them out of all the rivers and waterways and stuff, and do something with them other than grind them into fertilizer. Like they do that with Asian carp and some other stuff. But in Florida, they're starting to do that now with the iguanas and monitor lizards that are infesting the Everglades. Before I start getting hungry, let's move on to the (laughs) next one. All right. On May the 23rd, 2003, your friend and mine and known madman lunatic, Tom Cruise, professes his love for his girlfriend at the time, Katie Holmes, by jumping up and down like a little monkey on Oprah Winfrey's couch on uh, an episode of her talk show. What you may not realize, Bill, is that that mm-hmm. is not just him jumping up and down like a, a rhesus monkey on the Oprah Winfrey show. That's very rarely seen in the wild Scientology mating dance. <laughs> to attract a mate, you have to do that. Only It only works on the Oprah Winfrey show. You know that? You gotta think that Katie Holmes is sitting at home watching the episode going, well, that's a red flag. Or either that or she was like, oh, that's perfect. That's so sweet. You know, Val Kilmer offered to run him over with a car, but that's nowhere near as romantic. <laughs> uh, if I remember, there was like a, a pretty wide age discrepancy there. I don't remember how many years. It was it was noticeable. How can you tell? Tom Cruise still looks like he did in Rick's Risky Business in 2023. Yeah, I know. Whatever animal products he's eating, they're the right ones. You know? The dude doesn't oh, age. <laughs> yeah, that guy's like sold his soul to Xenu or something because, yeah, he does... I mean, he's aged a little bit, but not much. Not as much as, like, the rest of the world in the 40 years that he's been in Hollywood. Well, you know, we can talk about the 
the crazy town aspect of Tom Cruise's personality, but I, I will put my stake in the ground and say this. With the exception of Cocktail, he's never made a bad movie. I've enjoyed every movie I've ever seen him in. I'm not going to argue that point. I have not seen a lot of Tom Cruise movies, but I remember my friend coming over and bringing the first Mission Impossible. He says, oh, you got to watch this. And I was like, isn't that Tom Cruise? Because I had already kind of you know, written Tom Cruise off as being a, a, a weirdo. Right. And he goes, dude, it's so good, though. And we watched it, and Jeff... Dude, it's so good though. I, I know. I've seen them. I've seen <laughs> Those them all. Mission Impossible movies are actually very, very good action they, movies. They are fantastic. He, it's it's a gold standard. I mean, like I said, the guys. He may be a little out there, but he is fantastic. So yeah, this little incident of his, just like we refer to sitcoms or whatever that have run their course as jumping the shark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the phrase jumping the couch has now uh, become a phrase that people will use to describe somebody <laughs> losing their ever loving. <laughs> Uh, in public, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move Losing on to the 24th. Girl. May 24th, 1830. A woman named Sarah Joseph Hale publishes a nursery rhyme, which we all know, believe it or not, 1830. And that nursery rhyme is Mary Had a Little Lamb. Never heard of it. <laughs> she was a teacher at a school uh, when a student named Mary came to her class, followed by her pet lamb, and that's what inspired the poem. Are you sh- Kidding me? That's based on a true story? Yeah, amazingly enough, based on a true story. Well, if I was that little girl, I'd want a, a slice of that pie or a slice of that <laughs> lamb. Right. I'd be like, yeah, there's some royalties involved for me and little uh, Sheepshank over here, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, based on a real thing. And it's so endearing that, that Mary had a little lamb, which amazingly enough hasn't been made into a major, major motion picture, I guess. Not yet. Considering. But is. Are you listening, also, Disney? I mean, is also like it was the first recording of the human voice was a wax cylinder recording of Thomas Edison reading it into yeah. his Edison recordo phone or whatever it is that he called his, his wax cylinder phonograph. It also it was modified into the poem, Mary had a little lamb and when that lamb would sicken, she'd take it down to Packingtown and now it's labeled chicken, which was uh, part of the 1905 to 1915 development of the Food and Drug Administration following the publication of the book, The Jungle, to illustrate how uh, food labeling was important so you knew that consumers knew what they were buying when they were buying something. So, Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, sure. It's had a longevity beyond that in other forms. Really, really interesting lady. She was also the grandmother of Thanksgiving? Yeah, no, she was called the mother of Thanksgiving, and this woman was adamant, if nothing else. She had this, like, 17-year-long campaign to get Thanksgiving recognized as a national holiday. And finally, in, like, 1863, Abraham Lincoln was like, all right, lady, leave me alone. A, probably had bigger things on his mind at the time, like, just, just sign the thing and get it done, you know? Yeah. yeah. Get off my ass. So, <laughs> yeah, with Sarah Hale... That was like her big thing. She really wanted Thanksgiving to be a national holiday. Mm. And I don't know if she insisted on it being on a Thursday so we can get the next day off too. But if she is, good I for her. I appreciate that. Yes, yeah, so thank you. I enjoy that. Also, this make sure the surrogate mother of Black Friday. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> All right. Moving on to May the 25th. So May the 25th, 1994, astronomers announced that the Hubble Space Telescope has for the first time confirmed the existence of a black hole. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah. remember that. Yeah, it was found in the constellation of Virgo. 
So yeah, up until that point in time, black holes were just in theory, really. Right. Uh, that you could mathematically but, prove that they were there based on what you could calculate, but there hadn't been physical evidence of one that had been determined yet. Right. The only real evidence of a black hole that we had prior to 1994 was that terrible Disney movie that we just talked about. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, I don't know, I think it was like three years ago, something like that, where they had the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. I can't remember what it's called, but it took all those like pictures that they kind of like AI sewn together to get an actual photograph that we could look at of a black hole. Remember that? Yes, sort of. There's a couple different things that, that you're sort of munging together, but it's not surprising because astronomy is a weird enough science. But you're mm -hmm. thinking of the Gamma Ray Telescope that's the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope that took the pictures of like the, the Garden in Heaven, the other places and the constellations that you can see really well. But the picture that they used in AI to clarify was originally taken with this array of radio telescopes on Earth who were pointed at a particular constellation where they were pretty sure that there was a black hole in the middle of a, another galaxy. And that's what they got a picture of. And then the AI made it, it looks like an orange lifesaver that's sort of blurry. <laughs> kind of. I mean... I mean, every picture that you always see of, like, galaxies and stuff like that are enhanced. Right. You know, they're not straight-up pictures you bring home from the, uh, the photo mat. No. They're enhanced. So that photo that orange lifesaver as you called it right was enhanced but it's also pretty legit that's a black hole and i remember talking about it because that was a huge deal that's a big deal that's a black hole we got a picture of it right i remember one of my friends was like oh it's all blurry i can't even tell what it is and i'm like you know i want to be around i want to be there on the day that you're impressed by something if a photograph of a black hole is like eh Whatever, uh, to you. It's a little blurry. Show me when yeah. it comes in clear. What's funny is, I mean, the thing's like 55 million light years away. Right. 50, that's, that's a distance and time commitment that is unfathomable for me. <laughs> I can't even build a mental model of what that might be. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that's like that far away conceivably isn't there anymore. Or it's something <laughs> right. else now. Yeah. Right. It's such a weird concept to get your head around. Right. You're looking at something that happened 55 million years ago, potentially, depending on where you are in relation to where it is. I, at this point, if this was a, a YouTube video, Bill, and you and I were doing this, it would just be a picture of Einstein with his tongue out. And then we could go on to the next <laughs> to the next date. Because ultimately, <laughs> this proves the theory of relativity correct. Uh, and it proves his prediction that these things exist. All right, uh, so for the next day, we don't have to go back 55 million years, I hope. What do we got <laughs> we for the 26th? May 26th, 1973, Deep Purple release their biggest hit in the United States that still played in first day guitar lessons across the country, Smoke on the Water. And huh. I will say for the record, it is my least favorite of Deep Purple's entire catalog is that song. And it's still the oh, one that's wow. always on the radio, yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. Like, nailed it. Growing up, prior to me doing the whole, like, Haunted House and Rent Fair thing, I did about 12 years right. uh, in the band circuit. And, yeah, everybody, that's, like, the first riff that they learn on the guitar or the bass or whatever. Dun, 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 dun. It's, I mean, it's classic, but it's been beaten to death. Well, I, mean, it's, I, I guess that's a great song. 
if you're not completely overexposed to it like we have been. Here's the thing. It's a case of there being a fantastic riff attached to a not a good lyrical song. But you hear that bam, 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 and then like the drums in the background, right? You're like, yeah, this is it. I got it. It's coming. This song's going to rock. And it's like this crappy song about recording a song and deciding to give up on it for the night in Montrose and then going over to see Frank Zappa and some dude burns the thing down. It's like, and you're watching the fire as everybody has their concert night ruined. Eh, that's not rock and roll. Like, eh, I don't care about that. That's like telling me about like, what you had for dinner in a heavy metal song. But the riff is so good, it, it exceeds the quality of the, of the song that it's part of. You know what's funny is just knowing the song without knowing the mythos of it. Mm-hmm. You know, as a kid, it's just like smoke on the water, fire in the sky. Like, you know, this is 1973. We're coming out of the hippie movement. There's still right. a lot of like like weird kind of like avant-garde stuff going around, which we will get to later. But just thinking like smoke on the water, is I always picture it as kind of like a hippie like thing. And then somebody oh, yeah, said, totally. no, 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 no. That's a real thing that happened. Oh, yeah. It was a nightclub that burned down and uh, Frank Zapper and the mothers were playing. And yeah. And at the time, like, 70, 73 is a little early, but if, if it this song had been written a, maybe five years later and it was something like Rainbow did or that Dio did, you know, mm-hmm. it would have been yeah. like, you could, you could do the smoke on the water, fire in the sky part of the song, but there would have been castles and dragons and <laughs> sword fights and all this other stuff that would have made it a metal song. And instead, it's, for me, it's the worst song on Machine Head, which is their best record. Yeah, Machine Head's a, here comes the censor beep, mm-hmm. Machine Head's a motherfucker of an album and yeah smoke on the water is misplaced on it i'll say that you have a favorite song on that record bill highway star i mean yeah i'm not busting down any doors by saying that but oh my god highway star is such a great song highway star is a fantastic song i alternate with favorites between that one and space trucking catch me on the right day with space trucking on i will scream along with that song in the most terrible for anyone who has to listen to me way ever (laughs) one of my friends is a guitar player Mm -hmm. uh said that the best guitar solos in the world are the ones you can sing along along to yeah and yeah and richie blackmore mastered that art oh yeah all of his guitar solos i just sit there and i hum along with them because they're they're masterful yep i I always start for sure like that whole it's just awesome yeah you can't not air guitar it's hard to drive with that songs on (laughs) both hands are off the wheel and you're like oh i'm doing the solo like oh there's a telephone pole may 27th 2017 walt disney world opens up their world of avatar section to their theme parks much to the mystery of me and many 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 other people wait i know why they did it they took down their tron town and the black hole experience which were right before that right weren't they installed they just in the built a new tron town <laughs> well there's a new tron movie they try and recapture the audience that was horrendously underwhelmed by the first one not that long ago. It was a uh, Tron Legacy was actually really good. We watched that that weekend too. But getting right. back to Avatar, so Avatar that first one was like the biggest motion picture event ever up until one of the Marvel, yeah. one of the Marvel Avenger movies. But the Avatar movie, the first one, like made buku billion dollars. I mean, I went to see it in the theater. I went to see it in three D and. It was visually stunning. I don't remember much about the movie other than the people were a lot 
taller, like the aliens were a lot taller than humans whenever they were actually together at the same time. And there was a really weird allegory for sex with the bird creatures. Other than that, I don't remember squat about that movie. Well, well, I have you beat. I watched the trailer for it and I was like, oh, this movie is going to be like three hours long. And I'm pretty sure it was. And it's going to be all CGI people. Well, I guess I'm not going to go see that one. Uh, And I didn't. And I haven't seen the sequel to it either. And I probably never will. Just because it's just not my, it just isn't the type of movie I have the attention span for anymore. I can't willingly suspend my disbelief. The weird thing about Avatar is like all of these really huge movies that you kind of lump Avatar in with. So like you get like the Marvel, you know, the MCU, the Star Wars movies, uh, Tron, certainly, you know, Tron can get put in there. All of these movies have this like huge fandom and even like merchandising attached to it. And Avatar just doesn't. So, like, I don't understand why there's an Avatar world. I don't know anybody that is, like, super into Avatar. You know what I mean? Right. That makes two of us. <laughs> I mean, it's made it made crazy amounts of money, but I don't know anybody that's super, super into it. Right. And, like, when they, they were, like, threatening us with a sequel for, like, what, 10 years, 15 years? And finally the sequel came out, and... I know people that went to see it. I didn't see it. I don't remember anything about the movie. <laughs> the first one, I don't know nothing. I don't remember anything. How am I supposed right. to get And I'm not going to watch it again to keep up. I don't know, man. It's not my... I I seem to have aged out of that type of cinematic experience. I'm, I'm shrugging my shoulders and I've got my hands up. I look like the little shrug emoji guy. I don't think it's an age thing. I I don't know. Like I said... I, like, I don't understand, like, Avatar made all of this money, but like I said, I don't know anybody that's super into it. I know right. people that liked it fine. I know people that are seriously into whatever they're super into, you know? Right. Like with Star well, Wars tattoos and this, that, and the other. But I don't know anybody that's super into Avatar. I just don't. I'll look at it this way. I, I remember back to one the very first time in 1977 when I saw Star Wars. I saw it twice in the same day because of my dad. Uh-huh. One show right after the other. And I remember the feeling that I had at the end as Luke and the rest of are on their way into the trench, right, for the final run at the thermal exhaust port of the Death Star. And the music is really swelling and the special effects are really interesting. What I'm excited by is that I've spent 90 minutes getting to know and understand an event and feel like I can connect with Luke Skywalker, the character. Same thing with yep. Darth Vader and Han Solo and Princess Leia, etc. And I don't have that same relationship with a blue CGI piece of cutscene animation from a video game that I'll never play. That's the way I my brain perceives that stuff. I just don't connect to it anymore. Mm. Uh, I can't find a shared anything with the main character, so I don't. And that's how my movie-going experience has evolved over time. And I think that that's, again, I say it's an age thing, but it may not be. But my ability to suspend disbelief and be part of the experience, the shared experience of seeing the film, I feel like I'm somebody who doesn't belong there. Let's let's take it into something we do belong to. Yes. What do we get for the 28th? May 28th, 1977. Sting, we know him. Stuart Copeland, we also know him. And Andy Summers performed together for the very first time, backing up a guy named Mike Howlett at a show in Paris, France. Right after that show, Andy Summers is invited to join the police. And that becomes the band we know as, believe it or not, Bill, The Police, who I can listen to and empathize with. (laughs) The Police have 
consistently since 1981 been in my top five favorite bands of all yes. time. Yeah. I uh, I love that band. They're an interesting trio because they kind of all hate one another. <laughs> like, uh, like growing up, there was always that kind of like illusion that all the guys in the in bands like were also like best friends. Uh-huh. And then you find out like later on that the guys in the police all hated one another. Uh, the Ramones weren't really like friends with one another. Same thing with Kiss, blah, 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 et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. But the police, I remember watching an interview with them like backstage at, I think it was Live Aid, and Martha Quinn was uh, was interviewing him. And Stuart Copeland takes a glass of water and just like out of nowhere just throws it right in Sting's face. And then Sting just tears off running after him like right. to kick his ass. It was and Andy Summers just sitting there like, oh, all right, okay. Right, and, that's the uh, kind of relationship they had, yeah. Yeah, they would get into like fist fights backstage because like, Stuart Copeland had a tendency to play too fast, and it would piss Sting off. Mm-hmm. I have a live recording where I can you can hear Sting say, "Don't play it too fast," and then the song starts, and he's like, "I mean it." <laughs> One of my favorite pieces of police trivia is there is an instrumental. I think it's on the Zenyatta Mandata album. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called "Behind My Camel," and it's an instrumental piece, and it was written by Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers. Primarily, you know, 90% of the, 95% of the songs by the police were all written by Sting. But that one was written by the other two. And Sting hated it. He hated that song. So he stole the tapes. And one legend had it that he, like, (laughs) buried it in the garden behind the recording studio. (laughs) But whenever the box was eventually recovered, Sting had written on it. Behind My Camel. And that's why the song is called Behind My Camel. Right. And one of the engineers finds the box and he says to Sting, what's behind my camel? And Sting says, an enormous pile of shit. <laughs> that's pretty funny. That is that is a kind of like long game joke that I can really get behind. I like that. The Police, for me, were the first band that MTV hyped the release of their record before it came out when synchronicity was about to come was like probably five weeks before that record was released uh-huh. and they had they already had the video out for i think it was synchronicity synchronicity every breath every breath every, you take was the first video was that the first was that the first single and i couldn't wait to get my hands on the record and it was one of those where we bug we begged my mother to take us to sears the day that it came out so that we could buy the record the day that it came out brought it home and was like this is the greatest record ever ah, listen to it a million and, times and you're not wrong it is one of the greatest records yeah. ever oh no i loved it even throwaway tracks like miss Gridecto and mother which are two songs that were written by the other two guys uh miss Gridecto, written by stuart copeland is actually one of my favorite police songs that song is super catchy i love mother i think that's like <laughs> genius i love that song all right so let's move on to the celebrity birthdays May the 22nd, 1907, Lawrence Olivier. That's Sir Lawrence Olivier to you. I, I actually wrote his name down as Sir Lawrence of Arabia as I was preparing my notes. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> that was wrong. I know him from such plays as Hamlet. Uh, he was also in a film version in the 1950s, I think, that won a couple of Academy Awards uh, playing Hamlet, as well as other characters from Shakespeare's collection of characters and plays he was also a member a member of the royal shakespeare company 
probably the most famous member to ever come from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Interesting guy. Probably best known for the movie The Jigsaw Man. <laughs> or um, uh, Marathon Man, right? I just watched him recently in Marathon Man with, uh, with Dustin Hoffman, mm. which is... Uh, an unusual movie. The movie came out in the mid seventies. It's very, it's very mid seventies as far it as is. you know a, th- a thriller. It's very of its time. But Laurence Olivier plays a crazy, sadistic. I, I guess he's got some sort of connections to the Nazis in the in the movie. Yes, uh, where he was a dentist and he was just like picking apart the the, the teeth as a m- means of torture mm-hmm. of Dustin Hoffman. It was. It's a crazy. It's a famous scene. Yes. Uh, is it safe? Yeah. It's a very intense and, and insane scene. He, and Lawrence Olivier is brilliant in that movie. He's trying to find all the stolen Nazi diamonds in that movie. He was also in The Boys from Brazil. I think this last film was another film where he played a character either related to or a, a former or Nazi. I, I haven't seen that movie in probably 40 years, so mm. I'm going back. But he was in that one as well uh, in, in the 1970s. So it was a little after Marathon Man, and it was right before he passed away. And he was in that 1979 Dracula. You remember that one? He was Van Helsing in that. With Frank Langella? Was it that one? The one that cuts the whole... Yes. Just to him arriving in England? Right? Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, okay, so maybe he li- maybe he did live longer than, than I thought. I think the boys from Brazil was 77, so maybe he went a lot longer than that before he before he passed away. Anyway, uh, he, he's the guy that... You know, typically... Oh, yeah, he died in 89, dude. Oh, wow. I thought for sure it was way earlier than that. Oh. All right. Moving on to the 23rd. Speaking of 89, May 23rd, 1933, Joan Collins was born. She's not 89 anymore, but she's still out there doing stuff even now. And was very popular character actress in the 1960s and 1970s, transitioned into American television at the end of the 1970s and was a staple of uh, 1980s evening soap opera drama TV. Uh, Dynasty, Dynasty. yes. Yes. It was uh, Alexis. Yeah, very famous for playing on that uh, show, Dynasty. She's probably the the most famous, and there was a lot of famous actresses yes. and actors and actresses on that too. But she really outshined everybody, just known for being a bitch. Yeah. The character Alexis was a bitch, yep. yeah. She was in a movie with that same name that was like almost... Cinemax softcore porn. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember seeing it available for rent at the local movie mm. store. She like posed for Playboy when she was like in her fifties, yeah. which is kind of unheard of. You know, everybody was making a big deal about how you know s- still beautiful she was well into her fifties. Honey, the lady is like ninety years old right now, and I'm looking at pictures of her. She's ninety, and I mean that's a wig. It's obviously right. a wig that she's wearing, but she's. She's as beautiful as she ever was. Right. And she's 90. Yeah, she carries it well. Go, Joan. All right, moving on to May the 24th, 1943. So just 10 years younger than mm-hmm. Joan Collins, which is hard to get my head around. Uh, but American actor Gary Berghoff, probably best known for the TV pilot that never aired, Walter, which was <laughs> a spinoff of MASH. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, Gary Berghoff played Radar, on the television show MASH. Uh, that's what he's probably best known he for. He was also Radar in the movie MASH. He was the only character that made it from the movie to the TV show. I mean, the only actor that oh, no played kidding. both parts. Yeah, He was the one in the very beginning oh, wow. where he's like, uh, I'll go I'll go file the serial number off of that Jeep. Uh, go file the serial number off that Jeep, Radar. And everything that he, 
he was asked to do by Colonel Potter. He was already saying that he was on his way to do. He was right. like Colonel Potter's attache. Yeah, he was very funny in that movie. A couple of interesting things about Gary Berghoff. One, he only had like two or three fingers on one of his hands. So if you watch MASH carefully, you'll notice that he always has his hand kind of like obscured or covered with something. And that's to hide the fact that he only had a couple oh. of fingers on that hand. Okay. Which is double interesting because he was also a really good drummer. Really? Yeah, I remember watching like Merv Griffin with my father or something, and he was on there, and he was up there playing drums like like you do, you know? Here's like uh, winning points at trivia night at the local bar. At one point, Gary Berghoff and Linda Carter, better known as Wonder Woman, were in the same band together. They had like a garage band kind of thing together. <laughs> Was that before or after they were both on TV? Before. Oh. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's like, like, that's such a visual I want to see. Right. Move on to the 25th. May 25th, 1939. Another Shakespearean actor named Sir Ian McKellen. He's also another sir, now that I think about it. All the these man, sirs. The man who defined the way villains should be in Marvel Cinematic Movies as Magneto. Yes. He is great in that. He was also great as Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings films. Mm-hmm. Provided you have 65 hours to watch them. And <laughs> uh, is always entertaining no matter what he's in. The first time I saw him, he was in this great, like, messed up 1980s horror movie called The Keep. Have you ever seen The Keep? Yes, I remember The Keep. Well, he's the he's the guy in the wheelchair that sort of sells his... He makes the deal with the monster in the castle. Yeah. And oh, That was gets, Ian McKellen? That was Ian McKellen, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, no kidding. And then and then he like kind of gets younger. He's able to stand up and stuff. And it's because of the relationship that he has with the monster. The monster saves his daughter from the Nazis. The movie's a mess. But he's in it. That's the first time I ever saw him in anything was in that movie. Oh, wow. Probably best known for... Walter in June. Uh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just looking at his IMDb. He's in a or, bunch of stuff. Oh, he was in um, he was in The Shadow. Remember when they tried that? Yep, I remember that. Yes, he was. Yeah. He was in the he with, was in the uh, Shadow with Alec Baldwin. With Alec Baldwin. Yeah. yeah, I like that yeah. movie. And he was in um, Gods and Monsters with Brendan Fraser, where he played James Whale, which was an oh, excellent yeah. movie. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the 26th. May 26, 1948, Sir Stevie Stevie Nicks, uh, Uh, probably best known for writing hate, hate songs, not love songs, hate songs to uh, Lindsey Buckingham during their tenure in Fleetwood Mac. That then Lindsey Buckingham had to sing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then again, you know, he also did the same thing to her. She also had a big, a big, big, big solo career courtesy of MTV and a ton mm-hmm. of good duets with Tom Petty, among others, that uh, really carried her star forward. That always confused me whenever MTV first came on because, you know, Stevie traditionally is a boy's name. I mean, it's a variation of Stephanie, but... So I would see videos of Tom Petty that stopped dragging my heart around by uh, Stevie Nicks would come on. I was like... Boy, this Stevie Nicks really looks a lot like Tom Petty. I didn't realize that Stevie Nicks was the girl in this uh, situation. Oh, uh, nice. 
when I was a kid growing up, we had the Rumors album, so I knew who she was before MTV. She was one of the people that was the face of like adultish contemporary on MTV early in the early years of that, but still had fans in the younger demographic too. She's a, she's a, this weird person who could drift between both audiences really well and doing mm, things like yeah. pairing with Tom Petty also gave her this unusual longevity for artists from the 70s making that crossover to really high success in the 1980s. And like her solo career, she put out like one or two solo albums and then Fleetwood Mac had put out like another album Mm -hmm. and her star power just brought so many more fans into Fleetwood Mac at that point. Right. Well, remember like Lindsey Buckingham also put out a solo record. You remember that? And so, yeah. And so did um, Christy McVie. They all had solo albums. How, How many of those did you buy, Bill? Zero. Right, not even the Stevie Nicks one. Yeah, can you can you name it? Well, can you name any songs off of like the Lindsey Buckingham one? Yeah, Holiday Road from Vacation uh, and I Trouble. Only know, I only know that trouble. one. Don't forget Trouble. I only know that one from being in vac- the Vacation soundtrack. Yeah, but okay. I remember the song Trouble too. Two, a three, a four. <laughs> no but that's me. I'm a music nerd. Don't 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 use me as a reference. Yes, I uh, I think uh, his. His records will have sold less than Stevie Nicks's at the time, but that's the point. Oh, for sure, yeah. All right, going on to the 27th. May 27th, 1958, uh, VHS-era Scream Queen and B-movie superstar Linnea Quigley, who in her days off from her part-time job, I think probably scooping ice cream, made a million crappy B-movies that went direct to DVD or direct to cable TV and was a staple in horror movie magazines uh, every single time I bought one. Even if I can't remember any of the movies that I saw her in other than... I was about to say, what is she in? What would I know her from? Other than, like, Night of the Demons. I think that's the only one that I can remember remember. Oh, that I know. So, Night of the Demons, uh, I have a friend that... I don't want to say he's obsessed with it, because that is the wrong word. But he is, like, a Night of the Demons aficionado. He knows that movie backwards and forwards. I think he wrote or was part of a commentary track on a recent yep. re-release of it and stuff. Yeah, he knows everything backwards and forwards about that movie. So, I he probably has this girl's like phone number in his you know in his uh, quick dial. There's so many uh, actors and actresses who were part of that scene, that weird undercurrent of films like the Charles Band features and and stuff whose names I can't remember, but hers is one that I can because it was on. It was always in the largest font. I have a feeling that in every film that she was in, she took her shirt off. Don't forget her last name is Quigley. That kind of jumps right out at you, too. It's it's true. I just By want to way. point out that Night of the Demons had a $10 million budget, and its box office was under $65,000. <laughs> that movie, that movie tanked. Wow. Yeah. Again, I, I probably got, it probably got released into like seven you know, dirty third-run cinemas in New York City's dark side. And then it went straight to VHS because that's where the market was for all of that. VHS rental stores into the horror section. Boom, bam, that's where where her movies live. And then wrapping up the birthdays, May the 28th, 1968, Australian pop superstar and soap opera actress, Kali Minogue. Oh, yeah. Probably best known for her cover of The Locomotion back in the area. Back in the eighties, that was the first song she had that charted. I think here in the states, but I, for for me, she is best known as the woman who sings "Can't Get You Out of My Head," which is 
one of my all-time favorite pop songs. Yeah, that is one of the best pop songs ever recorded and written. It is. It's a piece. It's a masterpiece. It's great. So when she first popped out onto the pop scene in the 80s with her cover of The Locomotion, that was around the same time as like the Tiffany's and the Debbie Gibson's. And there was like a few others at that time, but only Tiffany and Debbie Gibson get like remembered. But there was a lot more that they the record companies just tried shoving out there. And Kylie Minogue was one of them. And she disappeared for a very long time, at least here in the States. And then whenever the single of Can't Get You Out of My Head, you know, popped on the charts, I was like, Kylie Minogue, that's the freaking locomotion girl. What is she doing? And then, no, it blew up. It was insanely popular, especially like in the dance clubs and stuff like that. And like we just established, it's a great song. It's fun. Fantastic. While I remember locomotion, that's like a blip on the Kylie Minogue radar for me. Where I remember seeing her for the first time, like for real, was in the terrible movie based on the Street Fighter video game where she played Cammy, <laughs> the girl in camouflage pants who oh, and Red yeah. Beret who uh little on the nose of the character name there. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was I mean it was a video game so it, it has yeah. as much depth as Donkey Kong, you know, or Pit Fighter. But she I'm, played Cammy and she was very funny in that role. Yeah, I'm watching like a, a a montage of it right now and it looks like it was pretty good casting, but I mean, it's a movie based on a video game, and that never works out. It it just doesn't, yeah. That is like the cinematic version of... The worst song ever. Wow, Jeff. Wow. Wow. I have had close to 45 minutes of my life just sucked away from me. Mm. I can't believe this actually happened. Okay. So what we're talking about today is an album that was put out by John Lennon of the Beatles at the height of the Beatles' success. This came out in 1968. This is an album that he put out with his soon-to-be wife, uh, not his wife at the time, Yoko Ono. There's basically no songs on this album. There's just side one and side two. The name of the album is called Two Virgins and... Like I said, it's about 45 minutes long, and picking a 30-second clip out of it was a long and arduous task, (laughs) but here's what I came up with. want my money back mr john lennon (laughs) well i mean there's the arts for art's sake argument for a piece of noise art like this which is i don't know i'm john lennon i can record whatever i want and people will still purchase it yeah that's sort of my take on this i so i did up the research and you know reading up on this album And what had happened was John Lennon's first wife, Cynthia, and John were having problems. Uh, John was notorious for being a bit of a hothead. So she had taken off to Greece, and I believe Julian, the the son, was with her as well. Mm -hmm. And 
while they were gone, John had gone to this like art display, and that's where he met Yoko Ono. You know, they clicked. So he invited her back to his house, and he said, you know, we did not make love. We... We made this album. This is what we made. Yeah, here, let me put it on for you to show you that we weren't fooling around. Yeah, Mm. which is basically like they left the tape recorder in the side of the flat or wherever he was living. And then you could just like hear him like the the whole album is just like them. You can hear him like talking in the background. At one point, it sounds like a cat runs across the piano. Right. And it's just like him picking up different instruments and like, oh, this is nice. And then, of course, Yoko Ono's doing her shrill shrieking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was the album. They recorded this, whatever the hell it is, and then they had sex. And well, after 45 minutes of noodling around on a Moog synthesizer, what else are you going to do, I guess? So it went for it went on for like six months of John Lennon was like, I want to release this album. And the Beatles, the rest of them are like, uh... You know this is garbage, right? Like, right. there's no defending this. There's no right. anything. So after six months of begging, I guess, they put it out on Apple Records. Like, not only is this like a horrible, not even music. You would expect way better from the Beatles or any member of the Beatles. Uh, especially at that time. It's like, oh, my goodness, the John Lennon solo album. Again. What the hell? And then you get it home and you open it up and the album cover and the back cover are you know, you know, photographs of John Lennon and Yoko Ono both completely naked. And then neither one of them are attractive human beings. <laughs> well, I don't think it was it was meant to be erotic. It was meant to be to showcase the fact that they were, you know, making air quotes as these virgins. I, I like I get the visual part of it. I even get the audio part of it to a point. But it isn't something that I would ever sit down to listen to on purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who listens to a legendary Stardust Cowboy on purpose. And I listen right. to Wildman Fisher on purpose. But this is unlistenable garbage, is what this record is. And like I said, you would expect so much more from one of the Beatles. You got to remember, this is like 1968. So the Beatles are like the police at this point, just like fighting tooth and nail and arguing and all that. So John Lennon's like, I'm going to go make myself a solo album. And you could just hear Paul McCartney just like like pissing his pants laughing. It's like, this is what you came up with? Right. You're going to give me... You're gonna give me shit for my bubblegum pop when you're gonna like you know bang a banjo over the back of your head? There's a YouTube video, I, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's basically like, hey, if you want to learn how to play guitar to impress girls, learn Wonderwall. And it's the whole thing is like just a guitar lesson for Wonderwall, which is a pretty easy song to play on a acoustic sure. guitar. And when I was listening to this crummy record today, and listening to John Lennon go from like instrument to instrument and the the background gr- grumbling sort of incoherent babble that you have from him yep. and the shrieking from her. All I could think of was if this dude knew Wonderwall, he probably would have scored with Yoko Ono like in the first five minutes and this record would have never happened. Oh my God. I mean, well, Wonderwall sounds like a Beatles song in the first place. He could have played anything. This is <laughs> no, it's true. Fields. It's true. You know? <laughs> so at this time, not only were they making terrible records together, but apparently they made terrible films together too. A good half dozen or dozen of them and they're real, like, strange and avant-garde. Like, one of them is, like, 45 minutes long and 10 minutes worth is just, like, John Lennon's face and Yoko Ono's face, like, superimposed over one another. Like, 10 straight minutes and, like, nothing's going yeah. on. That's it. 
And then there's another movie that John Lennon just sat there smiling at the camera for like three minutes straight. But then they like slowed it down and stretched it out to like a half an hour. So imagine like being in, I mean, it's not going to be at the movie theater. It's like a cinema and be in an art house. But imagine going to an art house and you're sitting down and like a half an hour later, you're still looking at John Lennon, like smiling at the camera, like, all right, this is odd and weird and creepy and I want to go home. Well, I think the same audience that would go to sit and watch that are the, the ones that the week before would have been looking at the John Lennon one and eating their popcorn and saying like, well, you know, the 16 hours we spent watching the Empire State Building that Andy Warhol filmed is yeah. has more depth than this does. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's I, probably If I had to choose, audience. I like that one better. Yeah. Well, at least the lights blinked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a, another one where instead of him smiling at the camera, it was like just his like penis. And I don't know if that was smiling, but that was like another shot of like this like extended static shot of John Lennon's uh, schlong. <laughs> Junk. And, well, it's probably yeah. more enjoyable than Obla D Obla Da. <laughs> another one that they did was like this close up of this naked woman with like a housefly crawling on different parts of her body. And like that's like one of their little like little art films. It's like, I don't know. Imagine just being a Beatles fan and like, you know, Abbey Road and uh Let It Be and Sgt. Pepper's the three last album oh, I have the white albums in there too. But like yep. just like all this great music, like all at once, all sandwiched into this like little three year period. And then this. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I don't know what to say. I, don't, I got. I got nothing left. Never record yourself trying to impress an artist. That's what it says to me. There should be like a warning label, a tipper sticker on this record that says that. For you kids thinking of trying to use your musical skills or lack of, in some cases, to impress the girl in art class that you think is really hot, listen to this record yeah. first. Yeah, learn Wonderwall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an easy song. It's like two chords. All right, Jeff. Before we wrap up the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Oh, yes. Our friends over at Netflix are pulling the plug on their little business venture where they are mailing out DVDs to their customers. Something's going to be first. What was the first movie that Netflix mailed out as part of their DVD rental service? I'm going to go with my, my gut instinct here. And the year that I spent one week working in a video rental store and learned that as Americans... 99.9999% of people have astonishingly terrible taste in films. Therefore, I am going to go out on a limb and say that the first film rented from Netflix's DVD mail service was probably... Can I, can I give you two possibles? Why not? All right. Possible number one, Titanic. And possible number two, some movie with like Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. All uh, right. Nope. Nope, both wrong. Both wrong. Both wrong. Uh, oh, wow. No, it was Beetlejuice. Was it really? Beetlejuice was the first movie that was mailed out as a rental as part of the DVD mailing service from Netflix. All right, but that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Yay. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye everybody. Guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibley or t-w-w-w-b-l-y subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends they'll probably get all the trivia questions right too bastards <laughs>